morning. We are once again looking at the the Christmas uh, uh, series, the Advent series uh, entitled Songs of Salvation. Um, We're going to be looking at Mary's song uh, this morning. We, last week, we many of you were not, uh, we weren't able to meet, and uh, many of you went other places to worship. A few of us did gather at my house, and we I did, since I had already prepared a sermon, did uh, share my sermon on Zechariah's song last week. So uh, this week, we're kind of backing up in the narrative, actually going backwards and looking at Mary's song, which comes right before Zechariah's song. Um, but in some ways, it's a sort of more majestic song. It's the song of the mother of our Lord Jesus. Um, So we're going to look at God's Word this morning from Luke chapter 1, verses 39 to 56. It's printed for you in the bulletins. Let's uh, turn there. In those days, Mary rose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he looked on my humble estate, on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would uh, help us with Mary. Uh, shout with exaltation uh, these words, My soul magnifies you. Uh, Lord, may that be our, our cry uh, in hearing these uh, glorious truths of the birth of your Son. Lord, we thank you uh, for him, and we pray that you would help us to see him more clearly from your word this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Two words, both same root. Uh, pretty, pretty common words that I hear today. Powerful and powerless. Uh, these two words are at the center of our national discourse. Uh, who has power? Who doesn't? Why? And how we can shift to dynamics of power within our society. Most recently, and I would say most poignantly, uh, The discussion has been with regards to how powerful men have abused women. It's been a troubling and sobering thing to read day in and day out as I go to the papers, as I read online. Um, And I don't think I need to regale you with details. 
I don't, as long as you're awake in this world, I think you have heard something of these things. Many view this as a moment when the power dynamics will shift for the better. Maybe they will. But in the back of my mind is this niggling idea that things won't change. Power will continue to corrupt and the powerful will continue to oppress and abuse the powerless. I say that probably because history says that. Why do I bring this up? Well, for one, our text is about two women who, within their world, were powerless. Uh, And secondly, Mary's song is full of this language of raising up the humble and bringing down the mighty and the proud. And so I think our text actually speaks to today. It speaks to this cultural moment. But the text's answer to the solution uh, of the world are very different. The, The solutions of the world and what our text says are very different. And I want to explore how these two women viewed the hope of Christ within a world that has been marred by oppressive power and sin uh, in their own experience, how they put their hope in Jesus. And in that, my end desire is that with Mary and with Elizabeth, we might sing, My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, as we too reflect on the hope of Christ. So to get there, let's turn to the text. We'll look at it in three parts. First, the call is magnify the Lord, rejoice in God who blesses the lowly. Secondly, magnify the Lord, rejoice in God who humbles the proud. And thirdly, magnify the Lord and rejoice in God who humbled himself. So first, magnify the Lord and rejoice in God who blesses the lowly. Our text begins with two greetings. Uh, And it's interesting because we only have one of them written for us, but they're they're both there. We're told that sometime uh, after Gabriel visited Mary, we don't have the exact time, but in the text it comes right following after Gabriel visited Mary and had informed her of her role in giving birth to the Christ, she went to visit her cousin Elizabeth, who the, the, the angel Gabriel had told her that, uh, she, uh, that they had also been visited, that is Zechariah and Elizabeth, and that Elizabeth was bearing a son who would be uh, uh, the one to uh, prepare the way for Christ. Uh, and so, pregnant, or newly pregnant, Mary heads off on a journey from the area of Galilee, right, Nazareth, down to the hillside in Judea near Jerusalem. Um, and she travels there, seemingly at least, according to the text, we don't have any other information, alone. It's an interesting thing. It's about 60 miles, probably a bit more than that as the crow flies, 60 miles, but along the paths, probably closer to 70, maybe 80 miles. Um, And we aren't told that she went with anyone else. Maybe she had someone with her, maybe she didn't. But it does beg the question, who could she have gone with? Who could she confide in, in her moment? Uh, Who knew about the situation? Well, we're told Joseph, right? 
Joseph could have gone with her, but we don't we don't know where he was at this point. Um, but there wasn't probably a whole huge circle at this moment who knew, and it would have been a hard thing to express. How would you express this to your friends and family? So where does she go? Uh, she goes down to the one person that she could talk to, Elizabeth. The one who would have some understanding, who had recently, their, his family, her family had been visited uh, by an angel. Uh, they were looking forward to a miraculous birth in her old age. She would have understood. And so Mary, probably who desired, from her deepest desire, to, to express and shout from the hilltops the fact that the Savior was to be born, um, but couldn't. Because of her stature, because of her status, because of her position uh, in her life. So she hiked down to the hillside surrounding Jerusalem to to talk to the one person who would understand. And we're told that Mary, upon entering the house, greeted Elizabeth. We aren't told what she said. We can only imagine... um, but it's intriguing that our greeting isn't recorded. Okay, you know, we're talking here a little bit about power dynamics, and it's such a popular topic today. It's maybe talked about too much sometimes, but um, it's a little helpful here to think about for just a moment. Who is Elizabeth? She is the wife of the high priest of Israel. She is a mature woman in her old age, in fact, because this is a miraculous birth after all that she's giving birth to the to John. And uh, she would have been a prominent figure. And in terms of relationships, she, she was a cousin of some sort to Mary, but she would have been more like a mother or an aunt or, or some older figure. She would have uh, been the one to whom uh, Mary would have deferred to in this relationship. But we aren't we don't have the description of Mary's greeting, but we have Elizabeth's greeting. And what an astounding greeting, isn't it? Well, first of all, we have two greetings. Uh, we have Elizabeth's greeting, we'll get to in just a minute. But someone else greets Mary when she enters the door. Who's that? John. We're told that when Mary comes in, John in the in the in the womb of Mary in the womb of Elizabeth leaps for joy. Um, just we talked a little bit about this on Tuesday, but um, I, when when Liza was uh, um, in her mother's belly, um, our firstborn. And, you know, we're getting closer to that time. Uh, and those of you who've had children, you've seen this. The, the baby starts to press against the mom's belly. And you see all sorts of kicks and arms and elbows. And uh, it's, a, it's really crazy and pretty amazing thing. Uh, and some of them are pretty violent. Like, and I'm like, how, how do you feel at this moment, Aaron? With this elbow poking out your belly. And you can see it kind of move around. And... Um, but it only makes me wonder what kind of leap this baby did in, in Elizabeth's belly. That she would not have seen it as that typical uh, prenatal, or whatever you call it, m- movement. Um, but it was something that caused her to know for certain that the baby in her womb was leaping on account 
of this uh, person, Mary, who is bearing the Savior of the world. It was John's first role as the preparer of the way, right? Here was the greeting. Here comes the Lord. Even before he was born. And anyway, John wept. And Elizabeth, full of the Holy Spirit, moved by her child's own movements, exclaimed with a loud cry. It wasn't just like, oh, good to see you, Mary. It was an exclamation, a loud cry. And she says these words, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy, and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Uh, What a reversal of the norm. Mary... The young woman who, who's coming to her great aunt, if you will, her aunt or some sort of relational figure who is much older than her, uh, and uh, the high priest's wife, some prominent figure in Israelite society. Uh, what, a, what a reversal. Here Elizabeth says, blessed are you among women. And then she queries, why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come? To me, she's overwhelmed that Mary would even come to visit her. Remarkable thing. She's overwhelmed in the fulfillment of promises to her and to Mary. And she's overwhelmed with the hope of the promises that would be fulfilled for all those people who put their trust in Christ. It's hard to underestimate how radical the scene would have felt for Mary and for Elizabeth and for all the witnesses that were surrounding. God had chosen Mary not because of her societal prominence or position, but rather she chose he chose the humble and the lowly in order to show his incomparable mercy and love. As we turn to Mary's song, it's this theme that is most prevalent. God raising up the humble. There are two parts to Mary's song. The first is really a personal reflection. uh, Sort of that overwhelmedness that Mary has that God would use her, uh, this woman from the backwaters of Israel, to be the conduit for God's uh, grace and salvation. And the second part is uh, sort of outward. It's how this child would impact the world. And so I just wanted to highlight those two things. But Mary opens with this glorious line, My soul magnifies the Lord, my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. In this couplet, Mary is saying the, the sense of these two things together, and that's how Hebrew poetry should be held, is you would get parallels, these parallelisms, and you stick them together and they kind of create a sense of a whole. So this, these two uh, lines of verse here, um, you stick them together, and this is sort of the sense that we get from it. She's saying, um, Mary is saying that my entire being, all of me, uses the word soul um, and she uses the word spirit and in that she's saying all of me my very person anything, everything that I have uh, exalts or lifts up or makes great 
this God who is my Savior. Uh, it lifts up and makes great the one who is great, the God who saves. Um, and then she continues with her reasoning. Why? Why for extolling the greatness of God? It begins with these words, For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. Why did God choose Mary? In one sense, we don't really have an answer to that question. Why did He choose Abraham? Why did He choose whomever? We don't know. But He chose Mary. But in another sense, He chose Mary because she was, in some sense, the epitome of what it means to be humble and lowly. She was chosen precisely because of her position. And I want to reflect on this aspect of God's gospel paradigm for just a, for just a moment. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus said in the Beatitudes, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And consistently throughout the Gospels, uh, and particularly in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus spent his time with the marginalized uh, spend his time uh, with the broken, with the sick, with the poor. Jesus spent his time with sinners, with Samaritan women, with fishermen and tax collectors and adulterers, uh, and so on. And it isn't to say he had no care or concern at all for anybody who was in power. We know he met with the rich young man. He also, uh, there, was a, there were people who were part of his sort of cadre of followers, that, um, disciples that were of means, um, um, someone like Joseph of Arimathea. Yet the bulk of his ministry was not to the powerful and elite, but to the lowly. And here, even at the incarnation, at at the coming of the, the Messiah, of the King of Kings to this earth, He enters into life among the lowly. Why? Is it because the Gospel is just not for the powerful, the prominent, for those in high places? I, I, I don't think that's the case. I don't think we can make that case. Um, at least not in the formal sense that if someone is powerful or they have wealth, it necessarily means the gospel isn't for them. That is, that is not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that uh, he came to those who had desperate need. He came to those who understood their position. Jesus said uh, in the Gospel of Matthew, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Mary says in her song, a few verses down, she says, And His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. And later on down, she says, He has filled the hungry with good things. Both of these lines indicate a certain recognition. Mary says he is merciful because she understood that she needed mercy. She 
She understood her, her estate wasn't just about being a young woman and from the backwaters of, of Galilee in the sort of corners of Israel, but she understood that she was humble because she was a broken sinner. Someone in need of mercy. She was hungry. She was hungry. Culturally, we think that what is really needed is power. That's why we use the word not just powerful and powerless. We use words like empowerment. And there's some good in this word, a word like this. It's a word that protects persons from abuse, right? So it's not bad that somebody is, is, gains a sort of empowerment. But um, it's also a word that I think um, looks sometimes to the wrong sources for power. Maybe we look inwardly for self-empowerment, or we look to the political wins for power, or to our education for power, or we look to governments for power, or we look to various movements and to jobs. We look to having right relationships with significant and important people for power. We look to all these places and many more for a leg up in this world. But the Gospel says that ultimate power is not found in any of these things. Rather, it is in recognizing that God, who is all-powerful, who is holy and righteous and just and merciful, has all that we need. And it's in recognizing that we ourselves are ultimately powerless to save. We are those who need God's mercy. We are those who are hungry. And that question is for you. Do you know your need? When Mary is talking about those of low estate, those who are humble, she's asking about, do you recognize your position before a God who has all the resources and riches and wealth to his, uh, um, in his in his bounty and his uh, in, in, in himself? Do you recognize that he alone is righteous and holy and just, and that we aren't? Do you recognize that our only hope uh, for, for sort of being lifted up from this broken, humble estate is that He would enter into our estate and lift us up? Restore us and renew us to give us life. It's in recognizing that it is this God who is powerful and holy and just entered into our humble estate to make the humble exalted, to lift them up. And so what Mary is declaring when she says, I magnify the Lord, she is declaring the greatness and the power and the wonder of God. And the truth is that this powerfully great God not only lifts up the humble, but he humbles the proud. And this is my second point. Magnify the Lord and rejoice in God who humbles 
the proud. I think that there is a part of us that maybe isn't, this isn't the right word, uncomfortable with Mary's uh, song on, on this point, but maybe on, it's an unexpected turn in the song. That it's not just a song about the, this glorious God who comes and lifts up the humble. I think we, we're comfortable with that song because we can stand and we can say, Lord, we are broken sinners and we need you. But then there's a second part of this song that says, but the proud shall be made low. That the rich will go away empty. Verse 51 says, He has shown strength with His army, has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down, in verse 52, the mighty from their thrones. Verse 53, He has the rich, He has sent away empty. And if we aren't careful, and maybe in our reading of, of Mary's songs, Mary's words, um, uh, we might think of these words as fairly revolutionary. And, 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 you know, even in Mary's day and age, there would have been those who would have viewed language like this as revolutionary. This is our call. This is, this is our moment. Um, after all, we have lived under the thumb of Rome, and she's talking about how God has brought down the mighty from their thrones, and this is our moment. We're going to step forward, and we're going to destroy uh, Roman rule, and we're going to establish this eternal kingdom here in Jerusalem, and the Messiah has come, and... You just go through the Gospels when you see this account, right? Peter cutting off ears and um, people misunderstanding his purpose. But the, 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 the desire to attack power with power, right? We all have that. Isn't it tempting to think that it's through our own strength and power and political will that we will usher in some kind of golden age to right the wrongs of all previous oppressors. No matter where you find yourself on the political spectrum, it is tempting to think, if only my candidate is in power, the world will be made right. This is, this is how we think. Power versus power. If we gain power, we'll have it all. Now, don't misunderstand me. Okay? Don't think political involvement is wrong. I was not suggesting any of that. But what I am saying is that political power is not a savior. It's not the end. And Mary isn't arguing for Israel to rise up in some political fight. In fact, what she's declaring is something that is already true. Did you catch the tenses of the verbs as we went through and read these things? He has shown strength with his arms. He has scattered the proud in his thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones. He has uh, uh, the rich. He has sent away empty. It's intriguing. What is that language indicate. I think it indicates certitude, certainty. Uh, It indicates a sense that God, this God who is holy and mighty, is a God who opposes the proud and has opposed the proud, and He is the King of Kings, who is the one who raises them up and sets them down. And in Christ's coming there was this sense of completion. What 
is going to happen is for sure. Christ's coming was laying a foundation of an eternal kingdom where righteousness and justice reign. And what Mary is doing is simply describing this hope in certain terms. It is sure. What the Savior says will, He will do, He will surely do. I think Mary's words to us here, these words of bringing the, the powerful down, bring both a sense of comfort and a sense of warning to us. It's comfort. It's a comfort to know that no matter how low we are, how oppressed we are, how downtrodden we are, that Christ is King, He defends us, and that all those who oppose Christ will face judgment. Just go back to Psalm 2, read Psalm 2, and how the Lord sits enthroned and laughs in derision over those who stand in opposition to Him. And He warns them, He says, Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Kiss the Son, lest you be destroyed in His way. This is the certainty, the certitude that Christ will come as our conquering King. And that brings comfort. And, and I'm applying it to the political sphere, but you can apply it to all sorts of spheres of, of oppression. Finding yourself in a place where you are being hurt, where you feel low physically. But it also means, maybe even more significantly and more poignantly, that the real enemy are not those external things, those external oppressors, but it's the hope that Christ will defeat our enemy of sin and in our own hearts, that, that we have hope that the, the, the battle that we face day in and day out is won. That we look forward to a day when we can be with Him in His glorious eternal kingdom looking back and saying, it is no more. That's the hope of the Gospel. Christ who comes and conquers. But there's a word of warning to us. Christ as the coming King will oppose the proud, those who put themselves up against God. This can be obvious ways. We can think of wicked men and wicked rulers throughout the centuries, people who've put themselves up against uh, God, and, and, and we can see how the Lord eventually, you just go through the Old Testament and see how the Lord brings the, his, uh, the, the, the people's enemies into ruin. But it can be in less obvious ways, I think. Um, we know our hearts and how they stand before God. And you have to ask yourself, am I standing in opposition to Him? Am I setting myself up in my own little fiefdom as a, 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 an answer to God, that I want to be separate from Him? Is that, is that who you are? Is somebody who thinks you're the master of your universe? This text stands as a warning that says, no, you need to recognize the reality. The King of Kings comes in the person of Jesus and He rules and reigns and He will conquer His enemies. He will bring low those who stand in opposition to Him. It is a call for us to recognize 
our position. In the middle of this text, in the middle of this song, um, Mary sings these words. She says, For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And it says, And his mercy is for those who what? Fear him from generation to generation. What does that mean? It's again that position of recognizing your place before God. God opposes the proud. Those who would set themselves up against God. But He has mercy to those who recognize their desperate need. You have an opportunity this season as we consider the birth of Jesus and are reminded that He is the King who was born, the One who came in all humility. You have an opportunity to say, do I view myself as the King or do I humbly bow my knee before God? I recognize my own brokenness and my own sin, my own powerlessness, my own frailty, my own need for a Savior. The Lord says, as, we, as I mentioned earlier, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Well, this brings me to the conclusion. We've seen the magnify the, we've, this call to magnify the Lord and rejoice in God who lifts up the humble. We've seen that He also humbles the proud. And finally, and in conclusion, magnify the Lord and rejoice in God who humbled Himself. This is really at the heart of this song, isn't it? The heart of this song is a, is a reminder that, that the King of the universe, the Lord of glory, the one who had all authority and power, came down to earth and dwelt among us. He took on flesh and He was born of a virgin. He was born in our likeness, dust to the earth. He was born in a manger. Relative ignominy. He was rejected by men. He wandered the earth while he lived. Not a place to lay his head. And this is what Mary is marveling at. She is marveling at the reality that God is humbling himself, coming to earth for us and for her. She is singing because she is bearing the salvation of the world in her humble body. It's very difficult for us to comprehend this. But this is the paradigm of the Gospel. God lifts up the humble and He humbles the proud. And He does this through His own humiliation. stop there and ask a few questions. What does that mean for us as we consider this reality? How does that impact the way uh, not only that we view ourselves before God, but how does that impact the way we view others? View others particularly in the church, but even outside the church? What What does that mean in our interactions in the world? I think it can't help but give us a heart for those who are oppressed and downtrodden. I think it's a necessary sort of 
<laughs> here's, the, here's the cause, and this is the, set, the necessary end to that reality. If, if God Himself humbled Himself and lifts us up from our humility, then, then we as, as His ambassadors, as His witnesses in this world, ought to see that same thing that Christ saw. Those who are broken and downtrodden, and to encourage and lift them up with the Gospel. To come alongside them. And, and as we reflected, this has really been a blessing to me in our community group, as we've reflected on the, the passage, we wrestled, what does that look like in a congregation? I think because we're human, there's a tendency for us to want to run to the most influential, most powerful, most prominent people in, in, our, spheres of, uh, in our spheres and get close to those people. But I think there's something here that says, who among you is least? Do you see them? You know, the ones that are hard to be with, the ones that are difficult and broken and messy, that have lives that are nothing like ours. Are you, are you reaching out to those people who are humble and broken and needy and saying, I, I, have, I want to encourage you in the gospel? Are we looking out to the world around us as we think about going out as witnesses of the gospel? Are we thinking about, uh, oh, we need to become uh, prominent figures in our society so that the world can see that we're prominent and, and gain sort of influence that way? There's nothing wrong, ultimately, with gaining influence that way. But are we seeing the marginalized, the broken, the downtrodden, the ones who recognize their desperateness and their desperate state, who are hungry, for the gospel. Something to think about. But I want to close with this reminder. This should cause our hearts to rejoice. That the God who is holy, who has all power and authority, humbled Himself that He might lift us up through His Son. As He hung on the cross, He paved a way for glory. And be reminded that God opposes the proud. Magnify the Lord. Rejoice in God who lifts up the humble, humbles the proud by humbling Himself. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we confess um, that we often view ourselves as greater than we ought. We don't see our desperate need and our position, our lowest state, as Mary would say. We don't see uh, how much we need you. But Lord, uh, reveal to us our own brokenness, but more so reveal to us your mercy and grace. Show us how you humbled yourself and came to this earth and lived and died that we might have eternal life. And Lord, give us a heart for the lost, for the broken, for the needy, for the maligned, for the poor, for the oppressed. Help us to see, give us eyes to see that. And help us to come alongside them in their brokenness. Lord, we thank you uh, for your grace. We thank you for the hope of the gospel. We thank you for the Lord Jesus, the King of Kings, in whose name we pray. Amen.